Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Big Chew Podcast. I'm your host, Maria Stockmuller. Here at the Big Chew, we ask, hey, how can we live on Earth without the stupid? What can science tell us? What can spirit tell us? So grab a bite and let's masticate. Thea Alvin is an artist in stone. She's built stone spirals, arches, and walls all over the world. She rebuilds ancient Italian stone villages with her students. And she lives about 10 miles from me in her cool, funky old Vermont farmhouse, where we talked about her philosophy of rock and stone and how she works with them. You'll hear things you've never thought about stone, Plus, you'll also hear her dog and a cat who became really fond of my recorder. Your father was a mason. Yes. And that's how you grew up with stone. But that doesn't necessarily mean that somebody continues on with that. So when did you know it was yours? I knew that stone was mine and that I was its. Uh-huh. Is that a word? It's um sure. I knew that I belonged with stone when I had uh discovered what an arch was and how it stood. That was a long time into my professional career of being a mason. Mm-hmm. And up until that time I was more or less a subsistence worker where I was working for um to make a living to earn an income and to support my family as opposed to being an artist who makes work because it's a passion and because it's something that you really love and understand. And Stone and I became kindred. We became a family. Um, when I began to uh, hear it as if it was a poem and something that I could work with as if in a pencil and erase without feeling hurt because of the failure of a piece, mm-hmm. but to work with it like you might with words or with a sketch pad, and to use the material as if it's a friend and not um, just something to pay the bills. So it became a, I, um, it became mine when I really understood that there was a relationship that it wanted to participate with me, and that it was no longer a battle of me against the stone, or me against the world to pay for food for my children mm-hmm. and that it was this was an artistic expression of joy and it that was when i understood the the material and we began a, a new course in life at that time together now you're a very small person and i've seen conversations where you talk about how much you can how much stone you can move mm-hmm which is like way over what someone would expect. Do you think that that's part of it because you have this relationship? Sure. Um, I'm fast Mm -hmm. because I have really trained my eye to see the potential of where each stone goes. There are many different styles of stonewalling and um, many different schools of thought around what is a stonewall. And what 
how to compose a stone wall or a stone structure or any variation that makes an arch or a house or a window or something. Um, and one of the reasons why uh, it works for me is I am so short that I don't really have to bend far to get to the ground. Ah. And um, so my motion is conservative. I can see which stone goes in which hole without searching for it. So my eyes are very careful and exact measuring devices. And I can see the shape of the negative space in the wall and then turn to the pile of material and select the stone that fits in that hole. So I make one trip to the pile and one trip to the wall. While I'm at the wall putting that stone, I find the next hole. And I go back to the pile and back to the wall and I fill the next hole. And I find the next hole and I go back to the pile and back to the wall. Mm -hmm. Rather than taking out a measuring device, measuring the gap, forward, back, and up and down, and then going to the pile and searching through 10 or 20 stones because um, it's, it's much more efficient to not lift a rock 10 times and bring 10 different stones to the wall and see if 10 of them might fit. It's, you know, it's much more, it's quicker mm -hmm. just to find the one that goes. So I've, I've worked efficiently like that with myself and I've trained myself to be very efficient. So I'm quick. So I can move a lot more material and in a day accomplish five tons of work that might that might equate to um um three thousand pounds is um is a ton and a half right and that is one cubic yard of stone so in um five tons that is four and a half cubic yards so that's three feet high by 18 inches deep by nine or ten feet long so that's one day's accomplishment mm -hmm. for me, instead of maybe 10 square feet, which might be an average person's accomplishment. Because it's, um, there are a lot of people who are a lot more exact and a lot more perfect about it. But because the, I prefer the work to look like the stone is the artist and to leave the natural faces on the front of the stone rather than the mason um, showing the high level of skill that the mason has and facing each rock and hammering each one to be a perfect rectangle. I think if the, you wanted a perfect rectangle, you'd use building Brick. blocks like bricks or blocks <laughs> or something that yeah. was perfect and rectilinear. And I prefer the beauty of the natural face of the stone and to have the work look like it had been there for a very long time when it's brand new. So... Um, that lets the natural face of the stone be more important and be more irregular and be more natural, just like we are irregular and blobby and maybe not as immaculate as, as we think we might be or accepting the imperfections within the person um, and then let the wall express how I feel about myself, beautiful and imperfect and complete and a bit broken. Mm -hmm. And so all of those things I feel are expressed in the wall. So I allow a lot of work to pass, whereas a different mason might be uh, really fuss a lot more over certain parts of the stone and working with hammers and chisels to really make it perfect. I let the stone uh, carry the conversation rather than the mason's skill carry it. I'd like to talk about the just the properties of stone as you mm -hmm. understand it. First of all, what is the difference between rock and stone? Mm -hmm. And then we'll get to the, the 
different kinds of stone in different kinds of places and how you get to know them. I think um, the technical difference between rock and stone is that a rock is a natural feral character that's Mm -hmm. out in the field or forest on its own somewhere doing its own thing. And a stone is some um, piece of the same material, technically, um, metamorphically, not biologically because they're not biological geological geologically thank you mm-hmm. <laughs> um that that a stone has been used or will be used in construction by um, human hands mm-hmm. so that it's it's a it's an object in use mm-hmm. rather than an object in the natural so that's mm-hmm. the difference between the two things and um i am i'm a lover of the planet and of the natural world and i see an opportunity to organize uh, and shape the natural world around me and in so doing I also take a strong stand as a protector of the environment so finding stone for a job may mean the closest stone to where the job is located and it might mean bringing stone in from someplace farther but not very far it for example I was offered a project on the seacoast of Maine Mm -hmm. that they wanted a stone roof exactly like the kind that I build in Italy. They wanted Italian stone for the roof on their house in the seacoast of Maine. And they asked me to discover the cost of importing the exact stone that I use in Italy to Maine. And I gave them the prices, but it just doesn't make any sense because... That building technique is not used on the eastern seacoast of the United States. Probably for a reason. For a reason, that we have hurricanes. Yeah. They don't in the Alps. Um, not a hurricane. And um, so the, then the architect wanted me to find a way to fasten the stones to the roof so that they couldn't blow off in a hurricane. So then I had to go back to the Italian stone people and say, can you drill holes in them? And then I had to redesign a whole roof system in order to have fastened stone with an with a water penetration barrier below it and some kind of, and I'm a builder, but I'm not an architect or an engineer or an inventor of a roof system. So doing what the client wants to have done isn't always the right thing to do for the environment or for practical purposes. And so for jobs like that, that want things that are pretty ridiculous, then I just say no thank you. Mm-hmm. Even though it would have been a really fascinating project, it doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do. So I take the opportunity to say no to some projects because of that. How do you size up a piece of land? Um, say someone has asked you to build an arch or something mm-hmm. or one of those kind of serpentine mm-hmm. uh, structures that you build. <laughs> Do you have to kind of suss out what the relationship's going to be with the stone and the ground? And what kinds of things do you take into consideration? I interview um, the person's land and the person and the project. So there are three things that I look for in a project. The project has to be challenging. So that's about my artistic creativity, what I have done and what I want to bring to this new site the suitability of the land for a sculpture and that takes into account the kind of stone that the land might have on it mm-hmm. and the suitability of the client the client's extended family to host such a sculpture and so while I am visiting with them and 
they're thinking that they're interviewing me. I'm actually looking at their land, assessing all the materials, if there's water, if there's clay in the soil. Um, by looking at the trees, you can tell a lot about how sunlight comes and what the soil structure's like. By looking at the earth itself, if there are um, formations of stone on the land or if there's running water, or if the soil is clay or very peaty, you can learn a lot about the property. And then you can form a design concept with, with the client about mm -hmm. what it is. If they have land, if they have stone on their land that's appropriate for a sculpture. Um, a simple arch, like um, one that a, a person could walk under, person um, other than myself, because one that I can walk under is pretty small, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe one um, like a door, a house door is six foot six inches tall. Uh -huh. So something like that, that a, that a regular um, normal person, <laughs> <laughs> average. average, an average person could walk through comfortably and feel comfortable and not, yeah. not frightened or yeah. claustrophobic or something. Six foot six high. Um, that's going to take about eight tons of stone. Mm -hmm. And eight tons is a lot of material. And I hear very often from a client, I would love to have you come and build an arch on my land. I have so much stone. And I say send me the pictures of your stone. Uh -huh. And they'll send me a pile of little round river stones that they have in their back garden. See, so much stone. And it's, you know, it's a little heap that might be two feet tall and three feet around. And round stone doesn't arch, for one thing. Okay. Um, river stone has a different characteristic altogether than field stone. What, what is the different characteristic? Um, it's generally smooth. Yeah. Because it's been worked and tumbled a bit. And field stone is generally rough and... Pitted. Mm -hmm. It has a, a little bit of ability to grip, mm -hmm. which is what you want in an arch stone. You want the stone to hold on to itself and create this tension. Um, whereas the river stone, the, it's very smooth and mm. the, the stones will pass right by each other. And if they're round, there won't be any place to grip one another. They need a large flat surface to make a good solid connection. And you don't use mortar? It's... I do use mortar if the sculpture is going to be left unattended in the public. The sculptures at my house don't have mortar, with one exception. The Gothic arch has mortar because that stone was used in the past. And when I removed that arch from display, we crashed it to the ground. Mm -hmm. And that stone is from underground, and it's both dynamited and grabbed with a backhoe and ripped. And because of that, that kind of stone, the underground stone, has internal fractures that are happening mm -hmm. that are not visible to the naked eye. And... In the case of field stone, you can almost always read the stone. You can see if there's a crack or a line or some kind of indication of um, internal damage. On a field stone, you can see that. On a stone that's come out from underground, you can't always see that. And so I don't always trust it. And in the case of this arch, I was already familiar with the stone. And I knew that it would need to be mortared in order to stay as a gothic arch, which is different from a Roman arch. They have different tension points. So I use mortar on that. I have had work vandalized, and I am very familiar with um, drunken college students. <laughs> so I want to be practical about um, expectation of liability yeah. and of uh, really of a person hurting themselves because it, they will climb them, the yeah. arches get climbed, and I don't want a stone to slip free and for a person to fall and be injured. So it's really to protect the individuals that do climb them um, from injury more than to protect the arch because I totally trust the arch. 
but it's really everybody else that I don't. Do you normally build with a sense of time in mind, like how long it's going to last? Or, you know, I think, for example, of Andy Goldsworthy, whose mm-hmm. stuff is so ephemeral. Yeah. And then other, you know, like cathedrals, medieval yeah, cathedrals, yeah. where it just... That's a really good conversation to have. Um, and I often have that conversation with myself. I just created a piece of work in Stowe that mm-hmm. lasted a day. And it took me two hours to make. And it lasted the day. And, and it was beautiful. And that was it. And it was enough. And um, works in stone should be more intentional than a day because it's so labor intensive so you really want for it to last and the intention generally is that it would last but if a client wants to have a structure that may be built and enjoyed on a temporary basis and then fall down and go back to the earth and just watch and enjoy the process then that is also something that I've done in the past Um, and that that is a conversation that the client and I have together about what would you like? How would you like to maintain this? What is the expectation of the duration of the sculpture? And what can we put in place for after we pass mm-hmm. in order to sustain the sculpture? How can we plan on this piece being maintained after we are not here anymore? What is the expectation then? And that came up um, in a big way recently In the last couple of years, I was involved in the restoration of a sculpture that another sculptor had built in New York State, and that the sculptor died while under construction, and he left no will saying what he wanted of his work. And for me, the important thing about his work was that it was his work and it was private, and it was something that he did for himself. It wasn't open to the public. It was a sculpture that he made for himself to satisfy his own personal desire to be a builder. And it was expressing uh, his own interest in shape and line and design. And then he died and the work stopped. And then 30 years passed by and the work began to decay. And suddenly there was a big uproar about preserving and restoring his work, which is good but it doesn't say that this is what the original artist wanted. Yeah. And it felt a little bit of an invasion to go into, dismantle, and rebuild with different eyes and different hands the singular vision. So it gave me a, a prompt about thinking more clearly about what do I want? How do I want this? Is, is this a legacy? Do I want it to carry on after I'm gone? And who should do it and how should it be done? And should it be changed what if they widen the road? What if, you know, the house burns down? What if I want to move? What do I do? Do I take the stone? Do I leave this, you know? Mm. So it's really opened up that dialogue. And then how to prepare a client or a university for, you know, um, for instance, Duke University, we prepared a contract that stated that after 80 years, my lifetime, that the, the rights to the sculpture to reconstruct it after passing through my heirs for permission would go on to their mason mm-hmm. who would pass down the techniques and the mm-hmm. materials that uh, provided for that particular sculpture. It's almost like a lineage. Yeah. 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 It sounds like there's a lot of intuition that goes into what you do as well as the physical skill. Do you also use, say, any academic geology 
how much do you bring in what would be considered like the standard assessments of the properties of different kinds of stones? Almost none, except that I, I liken it with, with students that I teach. If, if a stone has closed edges or open edges like a book, if it looks like a bowling ball and it's smooth and round, or if it looks like a book with pages and cracks that you can see, those are two very simplified forms of understanding, a very clear visual picture of what we're talking about. So the book shape stone would be one that would absorb water. And when water is absorbed into the stone, it can rot and explode the stone when it freezes. And that stone will decay and decompose and break. So that stone would be very poor in a clay soil as a patio or in the base layer of any structure supporting wall because it will fail. Mm -hmm. So in that case, we see in the North Country granite foundations for barns and really massive stones with closed surfaces, no cracks, no lines, no striation. And these stones are more resistant to absorbing water mm -hmm. and they don't have this big intake like a pond would of, of water, which is not the enemy, but um, I like to say water happens and <laughs> we need to uh, allow it a direction to exit the system that we're building. Mm -hmm. So if the water can get out, that's what we want. We don't want stone that can hold the water. So at, at that level, I care about the geology of the stone. If it's a broken, fractured stone, you don't put it in a suspension in the center point of an arch because that stone will decompose and it will cause catastrophic failure in the structure. So every stone that I come upon, though, has a useful purpose in the wall. So if a stone is broken, I'll break it all the way with hammers and use it as infill in the interior of the wall. Mm -hmm. And that part of the wall is called harding like your heart inside mm -hmm. your oh, body. Oh, really? Yeah. Spell that way? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. So the outside of the wall has a face, mm -hmm. and the, um, the interior is called the heart, and some walls have a backing on them of earth, and that kind of wall is a retaining wall because it's holding back the earthen part. Mm -hmm. And there are some walls that have two faces, that's called a double face wall with a heart in between. Mm -hmm. So that's something that you would see the stone on either side if you were standing on either side of it. And The same stone you would see? Or? You might. Mm -hmm. And if you did, that particular stone is called a through stone or a keystone because it's got a face on both sides of the wall and it's doing a job of locking the wall together. Some masons let those stones hang out outside the face to prove that they've put in one of these stones. And other masons put them in sometimes as steps so that you could step up them to climb over the wall without sitting on the wall or vaulting the wall. Yeah. So they might be a style kind of thing where you would step over it. Depending on the use of the field that that wall might be bounding, um, the sheep might also climb that <laughs> step. You have to be aware of the use of the, the thing that you're building so yeah. that you don't in your ego of hanging out the stone, get the sheep out into your neighbor's field. Mm -hmm. Each stone has a purpose in the yeah. wall. Each, each one is important, as, as important as another. Are there ever stones who just don't want to be together? Yes. Who just don't get along? Yep, absolutely. And even though they might look like, oh, this is a match. Um, 
Or can you kind of scope that out by looking at it? Sometimes you'll fight with a rock. And I find if I fight with it that um, sometimes sometimes you can fight with a stone and it's really you and you can't. It, it's really your thing that's in the way. It's not the rock. So clearly separating ego from the stone that you're trying to do. And when you know enough about it that it's not about inexperience, then... In, and the rock is still fighting with you. I take that rock and remove it completely from the job site. I'll, I'll walk it across the road. I'll put it somewhere and hmm. release it into the wild so that it's not part of what we're doing. Because it's grumpy and it'll change the mood of the whole scene. And it will affect all the other stones with its bad attitude. So I just remove it from the project so that I don't have to see it or think about it or not like it anymore. It just goes away and it, it's happy and then I'm able to focus on the project at hand. Do you prepare yourself every day before you work or say before you begin a project? Do you do anything to prepare your own mind and body to take on a project? It depends on the job. The answer is yes, I do prepare. <laughs> but how and what I prepare is different depending on what it is that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. If I'm teaching, the preparation is completely different from if I'm just building a sculpture on my own in my own time, in my own space. I love to dance with the stone and I have music on in my ears. I wear earphones with music when it's just me and that quiets all the noise and all the other thoughts that I have going on, telling me about paying my bills, what my kids are up to, how's my mom, did I fill the gas in the car, all the stuff, the clutter. Yeah. And when I have music in my ears, it shortens my point of vision to right here and now. And I can hear my heartbeat and my breath. And then I can focus and sink into the meditation work and the deep breathing and this walking movement of to the pile and back to the wall and to the pile and back to the wall. And it becomes very much this Tai Chi kind of movement where I'm bringing in energy and pushing energy out. And there's a very big flow of material and sound and breathing as the structure is growing from the ground up with me and I'm releasing all the anxiety and angst out and all the pain and anger and everything goes as I become more tired things fade and drift and become calm and quiet within me so it's really um, it's a peaceful journey the more and more tired I get the more peaceful and the more at peace I become and the larger the structure is. And the structure absorbs the beauty of that quietness within me and rises as a, as a structure. Is there a particular kind of music that you listen to or does it depend? It also depends. It depends mm -hmm. on the time of day. It mm -hmm. depends on where I'm at in my energy. I typically like music that doesn't have lyrics that would be... Um, electronic type music mm -hmm. sometimes drum and bass and that would be later in the day when i need motivation mm -hmm. i need like a really pounding kind of fast like you can keep going keep doing this um sometimes uh, if the lighting is just right it's really really magical and i think about different places that i've traveled that have had a lot of impact on me energetically for instance iceland so i listen to to this band and they have this very mystic um, it's the music of joy, the language of joy. And so I listen to this singing and this power and try and pull that, that deep earth energy with me. And so that would be how I would rise with the day and start the day. It would be something like um, Moby or um, things that are more uh, less less bossy, 
mm-hmm. and more um, lyric and melodic and then towards the end of the day it's more raucous and mm-hmm. rowdy and just keep keep going keep pushing kind of thing Let's talk about the places you've been. I was reading something the other day uh, to prepare for this about Chinese lithophilia. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw some mention where you've you've been to China. I have right? been to China. Yeah. I don't know what lithophilia means. The though. love of rock. Okay. Yeah. And cool. they were saying that. how it was so interesting. I had some quotes from it that of course I left on the printer. How in the West People see rock, stone as inert, mm-hmm. um, just kind of matter. And, mm-hmm. of course, matter gets a bum rap in the yeah. West anyway. Yeah. Um, and there's something static, inert. And the Chinese, in you know, for thousands of years, have had this love of different kinds of rocks. Mm-hmm. And the emperors would bring certain kinds of rocks and they would admire each other's rocks. And in this article, it said that the view of rock is so different because it's considered part of a process. Uh-huh. It's a passage from yes. one kind of energy to another, from a certain condensation of energy yeah. to another, yeah. which I think, which of course is how it happens because you know, the rock weathers and we take the water into our bodies and all these things happen. Can you tell me about some of the places you've been that have shaped your stonework? Well, uh, China was very informative. Correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> I climbed a sacred mountain in China called Huangshan, and it was uh, southwest of Shanghai and Suzhou, where I was staying. And um, I climbed with many thousand other tourists up the mountain and arrived at the top where there was a gondola unloading thousands of people. And um, we stood there on the top of the mountain and it was the quintessential foggy, misty seabed of cloud that we were above. And you could see these kind of proboscis-like extrusions of stone just sticking up out of the fog of cloud below us these long pinnacles fires of stone you could imagine the calligraphy wrapping clouds around them and the stork just so on top Um, that kind of thing where you you come to understand that stone is part of a process it is a moment in time that you are witnessing and that you are participating in it and in the same way, um, in northern Italy, there is a place called the Oridi, mm-hmm. um, which I pronounce very flatly in American English. In Italian, it means the horrors. So you can imagine Oridi as being like, oh, like, hor- horror, like the like horrors. Horror movie, yeah. And um, so this place is what was a river, but now the water's gone. And oh. so it's the chasm of stone all oh. shaped by... Uh, by the water and there's overhanging cliffs that you are underneath of and inside of and you're enwrapped in the stone itself and you can see each layer and there are bowls that have been cleaned out so you know the action and when you're standing in there you can feel as if the water you're where the water was and you can feel the power and the energy of this you know how fast it would have gone through there and the danger 
but without the danger. Mm -hmm. And then as you pass through, this is a, a long walk in the mountains, you come out at a place where there's another one, but it's full of water. Huh. And you can swim in it, and you can be in the water while being in the stone. And really connecting to these really organic, natural forms has really taught me a lot about creating shapes and learning what the flow patterns might be in the natural world by watching how water eddies and watching how it shapes itself into the stone and then trying to mirror it somehow in construction. So I look at cathedrals, which are you know very, very powerful structures where we shape our worship from the old forms, which were more, much more earthen and round and mm -hmm. low and dark into as architecture transformed our vision of God, we are able to then look up. So God changed from being this earthen thing, which we were very close to and part of, to being this thing that is way outside of us. So I look at stone in the way of informing who I am and where I'm from. In a lot of ways, it's teaching me about the world around me and um, how to interpret and understand the objects and structures that I see in the environment around me. How people are also shaped by structure mm -hmm. and how our learning and knowledge is shaped by structure. And then, then that helps me shape structure to inform future generations of people and in building the sculptures that I do around the world I'm planning ahead for 500 years or a thousand years when some archaeologist finds these funny little arches all over the place and tries to figure out what what were these people yeah. thinking how did they travel how did they build these things how did they all have this uniformity of thought and, and so that's all. Yeah. Were you raised with any kind of religious upbringing? I was, um, I was raised as a hippie, uh -huh. uh, which was sort of everything. Yeah. Um, the the commune that I lived on as a little child was one of um, running away from the Vietnam War. Yes. Peace and love. Um, there was no drugs, no sex, no women, um, no alcohol at first. No, wait a minute. How were you living? <laughs> so, you were so that came later. <laughs> but no drugs, no sex, no women. That didn't last very long. <laughs> yeah, like the shakers. <laughs> right. That didn't work out too well for them. Nope. Um, uh, so in the early 70s, I lived there for a couple years with my mom and mm -hmm. my uncle, sister. And, um, and then we moved back to Cape Cod, and my mom raised me there. And then my dad found God. And as a married Christian man, he decided that he needed to raise me because my hippie mom was not, um, was not doing a good enough job because she hadn't found God yet. Oh, okay. And so my dad took me and raised me as a Christian, an evangelical Christian in seclusion and isolation on Martha's Vineyard. And he taught me how to be a stonemason as a trade, but I ran away from him when I was 18 and away from the religion. And I moved to Vermont and found my way... Um, after years of trying to figure out my spirituality and set myself on a path that made sense that was my own one mm -hmm. and not one that was given to me by a parent or a husband or um, society. So mm -hmm. I'm just trying to shape, and I'm still working on that. Who, who is God? What is God? How do I perceive other people's God? And then how do I navigate 
within that. So tell me some of the other places you've been. I've worked in England. I volunteered with an organization called Woof. For oh, the Willing Workers on Organic Farms? Yep. Uh-huh. Yep. I think they changed it for political reasons. I volunteered um, for a couple of years, first in Italy as a woofer and then in England. And then uh, I was invited to return to the same farm. Mm-hmm. I had made a plan the first time I went to England to travel to five different farms over five different weeks. And the first one I went to kept me for seven years. Seven years? I kept going back for uh-huh. seven summers. And um, we built some fantastic structures on, on this property in the West Country. And it's right near a place called Tar Steps. And Tar Steps is a uh, megalithic bridge called the Clapper Bridge, composed of stone that they don't know how old it is nor where it came from, which is, I find, very interesting. And then all around this area are burial mounds of mm. the ancients. And on top of the mounds in the moorland, um, there are pentagrams of raised earth where they buried their dead and worshipped. And so I found that fascinating to have standing stones and burial grounds and this megalithic bridge and ancient sort of deep earth mystic kind of the lore and the the legend of all that stuff. So I wanted to go there and see if I felt something, if I could connect with um, some superpower out there, some, I don't know, dowsing... Ley lines, any kind of any kind of thing. If Mm -hmm. if I could feel any kind of thing, and the most I felt was um, terrible nightmares. If I slept on the uphill side of the house, I would be terrified and horrified and wake up screaming. And if I slept on the downhill side of the house, I'd sleep pleasantly and have a nice time. What do you think that was about? uh, I was told that there was a ley line through the middle of the house, and that so if you're on one side and you're your cycle and your energy was this way that this would happen and then the other side the other would happen so i found that to be true although i'm i'm not mystically inclined i wanted to go there to see if something would happen so this is where the fairies are from well let's go see some fairies then. yes <laughs> i saw bats <laughs> <laughs> but you know the whole ley line thing as you probably know so many of the cathedrals mm-hmm. in europe yeah. were built on yeah. those the altar in the east yeah. And, yeah yeah and there's all sorts of symbology which i find absolutely fascinating um the egyptians of course were um there was this roman egyptian love affair and they were um, in fact sometimes literally yes yes for sure <laughs> and all of these gifts came into rome um, and they were uh, egyptian artifacts mm-hmm. egyptian carvings um, obelisk beautiful work and then at the time that the that Christianity became a thing, they had all of these Egyptian artifacts. They didn't know what to do with them because you're not allowed to have false idols. So they put a cross on top yes. of them, converted all of it to Christianity. Like the obelisk in, in St. Peter's Square. You can go see it. Yeah. It's, just, it's got a cross on it. And I think yeah. Peter's up there too or something. I mean, that yeah. just makes a Christian. That's, it's okay. <laughs> um, there are all sorts of symbols. There are ancient pagan rites and... The Masons made funny jokes of carvings that they included and tucked in everywhere and symbols and earth rites and having the altar in the east and crosses and, um, you know, the, the crosses, ancient god Tammuz of Egypt got carried over into Christianity because mm-hmm. of that whole connection. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I just find that the whole historic part of figuring out or just breaking down how religion and structure work. I just mm-hmm. find that really, really interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah. Have you been to Greece? I've not been to Greece. Yeah. But I have friends in Greece, and I've been invited to come and 
and play around with their stone piles. I have a friend who's a, a, an art historian. His work emphasizes ancient architecture. Uh-huh. And he would go to Greece with undergraduates to reconstruct, work for several years to reconstruct an old temple. He would say to his students, ask the stone where it belongs. Yeah. Just ask the stone. Yeah. And, and first they thought he was nuts, but then they started to realize that that's what they had to yeah. do. Yeah. I find that stone that doesn't even know each other intends to create a composition. It wants to compose. It wants to come back together. It doesn't want to be scattered. And it will work with you if you ask it and speak with it. It does want to be assembled. Hmm. And it's very interesting to to dial into that, mm-hmm. to not fight against it, because it, it's a willing, it wants to. So um, so I, I understand his perspective. You mentioned Iceland. Yes. What was that like? I mean, that must be a, is a um, different... I haven't experienced such fear in my life. Really? Until Iceland, yeah. I was, um, I was so excited to be there that I became disrespectful of the place and the energy of the place without intending to be disrespectful. I was so excited I walked into the mouth of a cave without thinking, without thinking about where I was going or what I was doing. And in the mouth of the cave, I was suspended and prevented from moving either forward or backward, like the uh, Vitruvian man. Oh. And absolutely stopped and prevented from moving forward or backward. And um, what the cave was, was a uh, a lava shaft Mm -hmm. mined in basalt. What I was told happened was that it's a magnetic kind of force field that can affect the iron in your body. And so I hit a wall. Um, And after that time, I was, uh, again, afflicted with night terrors and um, cold sweats and dreams and screaming dreams. And, um, And I'm not... Those are the only like real occurrences of that in my life was this thing in, in England and then again in Iceland. And um, I came away from that with, um, with a feeling of a kind of desire to not disrupt, not move stone, and an attempt at understanding the newness of the place and the youngness and the ferociousness of the power that it took to make Iceland and to to continue to create it. It is being created now. Mm-hmm. It is it is young and it is pissed. Oh, really? <laughs> and as opposed to um, Vermont, which is very benign and very old and very gentle and doesn't mind if you poke its toe. Mm-hmm. You know, Vermont is very forgiving and very loving in the earth is, you know... Seasons are different, but the earth energy here is is not passive, but it's a lot less fierce. If you dig in the earth, you don't have an instant anxiety attack. And in in Iceland, if you're sensitive to that sort of thing, you can feel like this like paper cut feeling of picking up a rock. If you have this physical response to the to the earth, there they have a strong. See, stone is stone is paired with shelter and with farming. So you would 
create shelter you create shelter from the material that you have available. It is taken out of the field because it's a trip hazard for the animals. And it's taken out of the fields because it prevents crops from growing. So then it's piled on the edge of the field and becomes a rough wall on which the farmer could pile brush and create a barrier. Mm -hmm. Or it could be assembled in such a way that it was a sheer straight-sided construction that would prevent animals from passing through. Or further, it could be um, piled as one side of stone filled with earth and then another side of stone, and then you plant a tree row on top of it, and it becomes a hedgerow, which mm -hmm. we see typically in, in England and in the Northern Isles. So depending on the kind of land. In Iceland, there are really uh, lots of lava. So the lava is irregular and the piles of stone are these long, irregular rows. And they do have a deep history of keeping sheep, and they have the Icelandic pony. And right. so you'd want to keep these animals from whatever pasture and crops that you don't that you need to eat to survive. And there's a lot of fishing. So the, the kind of food that the people eat and the kind of houses that they live in is described by the land and the kind of stone that's on the land. So different, different material is going to describe a different lifestyle. And in Iceland you can see how hard and hardy the people are. And they gave a lot of um, credentials to the fisherman. Who, he has more strength and more honor in the society than the banker. Really? Because the bank do anything to get up and get in a suit and right. go to work. But the fisherman has to fight for his life every day. Mm -hmm. So he's much more honored within the culture because of his labor and his strength. Well, and also their bankers screwed over the country. <laughs> There's that. Screwed over the country. <laughs> but somehow that doesn't bother people here. Um, yeah. <laughs> are you training people to do this work? I am training. Mm -hmm. Yep. I'm training people both uh, with apprenticeship uh, and carrying on my design concepts in their own language um, today and in the future on my behalf. If they, if a person wanted to come along and take over for me, I would love that. Um, but I'm also training people to be masons and to have a trade. I'm training people who are women who don't think that they might have the strength or the skill. I'm training young people who don't learn in standard learning modalities to uh, to have this self satisfaction and the pride of accomplishment that is so easy to get to in stonework because you might not be able to spell or know your geologic formations, but you might be able to really build a great strong wall mm -hmm. and work hard all day long. And, and knowing that there are different things that you can answer and different things you can say yes to and not so much no. There's so much no. And I'm trying to teach people to find the power to say yes. And to feel yes within themselves and to square their shoulders and sit up straight and feel no <laughs> but to just to feel what that feels like and for the sake of having the pride and the self-esteem yeah. to 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 not be beaten down by the world yeah. of no and to feel look at this this is yes i can build an arch i can build a wall yeah. i can do anything and to have that power and that's that's what I'm trying to teach people is mm -hmm. to say yes, to feel that they can accomplish yes reasonably. And you have some workshops coming up, right? I have workshops coming up. I have um, a trip to Puglia, which mm -hmm. is southern Italy. It's mm -hmm. the heel. And we're building a truly roof. And a truly is multiple of true low, which is a singular cone. 
Uh, we're working on the second cone of a little chapel house for a man named Tonino, who is a chef. And we live in Other Truly of his. Oh, cool. Um, and then he cooks us as many courses as you can eat. Literally. And after a day of working with stone, you're probably going to use You wake up to breakfast. The big meal is in the middle of the day. We sit in an olive grove, eat layers of food, and then we all fall off our seats and sleep for an mm -hmm. hour and then go back to work for maybe another hour or two and then stop working and continue eating and just spend the evening um, singing, dancing, and making merry. Um, How many people are usually in a workshop like that? Ten is ideal mm -hmm. um, because then we can fit in, in a couple of rental cars and zip mm -hmm. around the countryside. And are there ever people who have never, or maybe some, a lot of them, never really worked with stone before, but they yeah. decided to give this a shot? Yep. And there are people of all ages that mm -hmm. come to workshops because they feel a connection to the stone and they want to explore what that is. So some people, I recently had a student who's a 74-year-old psychiatrist from Manhattan who came with his wife. And they outworked any of the young people on the project. They had no experience in stone. They just had an affection for the material and a love of what it looks like out there. And they had never experienced doing something with it. Mm -hmm. They had gardens yeah. and, you know, sort of an engagement in landscaping, but not the material itself. And they came to Italy and they worked harder than anybody you yeah. could ever imagine because they were into it. And that's all that it takes is that... The passion to try. They must have felt great afterwards. They were I tired. Mean, I'll bet they were, but just, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah, but super. I mean, you couldn't get the smile off oh, their faces. Oh, that's so yeah, great. so, so engaged. That's so yeah. cool. Yeah. Oh, and Italy's so wonderful. It is. Yeah. Then I have a workshop in um, in Warren, Vermont. Yeah, at Yestermorrow, right? At Yestermorrow. We'll mm -hmm. be doing some more arches and working for a school in Lincoln to build an amphitheater for the school and then an arch for another client. And then um, back to Italy, mm -hmm. and we go to Domodossola, which is in the Alps in the north. Mm. It's an hour northwest of Milan, very far up there. It's also steep. And there we're restoring a 15th century village. So it's mm. a medieval village that's, um, it was abandoned uh, about 150 years ago. There are columns in front of the village on both of the end houses as it looks down the valley. And from this perspective, if you were um, interested in defensive action, if you were into medieval warfare, which is how the structures of these houses, uh, they were assembled because of the tribal nature of Italy, constantly being invaded by other countries, seeking the, uh, the wine and the oil, using it as a passage to get to Paris or to some other place as a land. Uh, and so these these little villages were very tribal and very defensive. We're working on restoring one village, and this year we're going to take down a massive gable end wall in a house and rebuild it because the roof had collapsed and towed down the wall with it. So we're going to take the rest of the broken wall down and then rebuild it from the ground mm. up so that it can receive the roof again, so that we can put the village back into active life. Are there people living there? Though? There are people yeah. living there, yeah. and there are houses that are being actively restored in the village. Yeah. And we work on other villages in the area doing different little things, roof here, wall there, just to kind of get it back together. It's a very simple lifestyle, and it's um, people do live a long time there, and they are actively still scrubbing their clothes in these old stone oh, springs. Really? And wow. The old ladies are out there. Their faces are not. They're confused about 
what this American woman is doing with all these American students. And you can see that she's she's really curious and she's like faking doing the laundry and the thing just so that she can watch and scowl. And then I'm just up there like, hi. <laughs> because I'm American, um, I have very little but some Italian and I'll wave and give her the direct eye contact uh-huh. and a big old yeah. cheery smile. And she, then she's caught staring, she'll be embarrassed and right. she'll have to leave the wash basin and <laughs> put her off into her own little world. So. But won't that be cool when they have more of their village yeah. intact. Yeah. That's so yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. And they just don't understand why would somebody, why would a foreign person come to do this thing? A lot of students, you know, they all come with a different reason. Some are architecture students. Some are people who just want to build a stone wall in their backyard and have two weeks to spend in Italy figuring it out. Everybody has a different reason. It's very interesting to spend 15 days together with a group of people and learn each other. Because what you get, what you take away from it is not only the stonework, but it's also this deep bonds, this deep kindred feeling or really big antagonism. You know, if you haven't bonded, it's two weeks of your life with people that, you know, it's like oil and wire. Yeah, forming little just, clicks or yeah. something. Yeah. So we really look for people who want to do this work and are not afraid to get dirty and not particularly afraid of spiders or scorpions. So that's part of mm-hmm. the job, you know, really dirty. It's really hard work. Um, or if you go there and you know already that you can't lift 40 pounds, but you want to participate, you can draw, you can measure, you can render, you can learn how to do the structure part of it and without doing it really fits for everybody that wants to to get into a program like that and I teach I like to think that I teach a non-defensive stonework so that what we're doing is creating a system together it's not I'm right and you're wrong and I'm going to tell you how to do it Mm -hmm. that's not what happens we create a dialogue where you can answer the question why you know the answer to the question why And that way you can take home the answer and continue to ask yourself why and continue to discover the answer to why. So the stonework, the construction of the wall, whatever, whatever wall it is, the wall is itself the answer. Mm -hmm. So ask the wall, ask the stone. What piece goes next? Well, where are you? Is it a corner? Is it the inside? Is it the outside? Is it a retaining wall? Is it a chimney? What kind of a wall is it? Where? What piece are you missing? What piece do you need? Is it little? Is it level? Is it big enough? Is it through enough? Is it front to back enough? Is it tippy? Is it, you know? Mm-hmm. So you have to ask it. Ask it and let it tell you. And then you know the answer. In that way, each one of the students is guided through the program, whatever program it is, to be able to answer the question of why. I love that, of having the question drive it. Yeah. It's like instead of the human being. Yeah. yeah I'm right. I'm going to put this up here. Well, this, is, this would be useful. Do you have a favorite kind of stone? My favorite stone is a lot of stone. I like a lot of stone. I like it right beside me. Hey, thanks to Thea Alvin for talking with me, and thank you for listening. 
And I'll be even more thankful if you subscribe to the Big Chew Podcast at www.meetyourmyth.com. If you subscribe to the Big Chew Podcast during mud season, basically until May 31st up here, 2017, you'll automatically be entered to win a free weekend in our solar-powered tiny house with a big deck, kitchen, bath, view of the mountains here on our farm in Vermont. If you already live in Vermont or you can't get here, you can also give that weekend to a friend. So subscribe at www.meetyourmyth.com. Thanks so much. Bye for now.